0: Thank you, the praise team. I'm looking forward to jumping into the scriptures, although I think we already heard two sermons today, right? So, but here's your third one, I guess, this morning. Uh, We are in Luke 14, 25 to 35 uh, this morning. We're going to talk about discipleship. Really, we're in between sermon series. So we had, uh, we just finished Malachi, for those who are with us, you know that, uh, last week. And uh, next week, we're going to start a series called Jesus Loves You More. And it's really our, our preparation heading forward um, towards Easter. But I thought in between, let's talk a little bit about discipleship, because we have baptisms today and I think it's a fitting subject. Um, and uh, Luke 14, 25 to 35, is no be- there's no better passage to talk about discipleship, I think, than this one. Jesus calls for disciples. That's what he's looking for. He wants disciples. Now, I know that the word disciple is not a very common word. Maybe you think when you, when you hear the word disciple, you immediately think that's the first century apostles. They're the disciples. But actually, the word disciple just means a follower. And the 12 apostles were disciples. They were followers of Jesus. But the word disciple is broader than that. And as we just talked about at the end of Matthew, Jesus calls us to do what? To make disciples. That's what he wants us to do. I think the interesting thing about that is that it's more than just converts. You know, Jesus doesn't want you to just share the gospel with someone, make sure they say a prayer to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, and then move on. If you do that, ultimately, friends, we, we haven't finished the job. The calling is not just to, to win people over to faith in Jesus, but to then disciple them, to see them grow as disciples of Jesus, to make disciples of all nations. A disciple is one who follows, it's one who prioritizes Jesus above all else. That's what a disciple is, according to Jesus. Look with me. Luke 14. Jesus is calling for true disciples to follow him. There's an outline in your bulletin too. But we're going to read 14.25 to 35. We read these words. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not Hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while well, the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall it its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is calling for true disciples to follow him. Three different points here. Disciples put Jesus before anyone, including self, 25 to 27. Disciples count the cost and find Jesus worth it, 28 to 33. And then disciples influence others like savory salt, 34 and 35. So look with me. If you like to take notes, you're certainly welcome to do that in your bulletin. But first, disciples put Jesus before anyone, including self. Verse 25. Large crowds are following Jesus Jesus, uh, oftentimes drew large crowds of people to follow him. I mean, meaning tens of thousands, perhaps, at times. But Jesus, you notice here, he's not satisfied with just drawing these large crowds. He's looking for something more. He's looking for deeper disciples. That's why he says to them, uh, verse 26, If anyone does not come, uh, does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, uh, yet even his own life. Now you hear that, and of course, that's, that's shocking, right? Anyone doesn't hate their own family, their own spouse, their own brothers and sisters, they can't follow me. Uh, it's meant for shock value. And Jesus did this often. He, he, he said things that were, that seemingly just, just hit you for shock value, to make you think about what's being said. And I'm almost have to just leave it there, because I think everyone kind of gets what he's saying here, right? I mean, you know what he's saying here. Of course, Jesus in other places says, you love your wife, you love your kids, you love, you love your neighbor, you even love your enemies, But what he's saying here is, we put Jesus even before family, even before your mother and father and brothers and sisters, and even your own life. If you're not fully satisfied with that, uh, then uh, Matthew 10 is sort of a parallel passage. Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So he clearly says it there. But nevertheless, friends, he's saying for shock value, to be a disciple is To prioritize Jesus above anyone and everyone. And to make that clear, he chooses those who would be closest to us in this life. But as he says, it's not just everyone else. Even before yourself. Even before your own life. To follow Jesus is is in a sense to say, I'm putting aside my desires. My plans for the future. My dreams for what I wanted to be and what I wanted to do with life. And I lay them at the foot of the king. And he gets to demand my life. Verse 27, anyone who doesn't carry their own cross. And I think for us, the cross has become such a common symbol of Christianity. But it wasn't when he said it. It wasn't in the first century. In fact, the cross was a terrifying image. It was the the symbol of Roman uh, justice. Or really beyond justice, Roman justice. Cruelty. One commentator says, It would be as if Jesus said, I want each of you to take your own electric chair and put it on your back and carry it around. (laughs) That's the the, the shock value of what he's saying here, friends. Are you willing to bear the hardships? Are you willing to bear the sufferings, even death, to follow Jesus? A disciple prioritizes Jesus above all else. Our goal, friends, as Christians, should be to make disciples. Not just to draw the crowds. Like I said, Jesus drew the crowds. Crowds are not bad. (laughs) Uh, That's where the disciples come from. They come from the crowds, right? He has the crowds. He teaches them. And the disciples are the ones who come from the crowds. But the ultimate goal here is not to get large crowds. The ultimate goal is to get disciples. You know, there are some churches that are really good about bringing in the crowds. And I would say, I'm all ears. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. And I want to learn from them, those churches and say, how do you do it? How do you bring in crowds? How do you get to, to be able to witness to so many people who come? It's a great start to be able to get crowds of people to listen to you talk about Jesus and talk about the gospel. Uh, we, ha- you know, we do concerts. We do events. Those are good things because they draw in a crowd and they give us an opportunity to share the good news. Uh, we had uh, our Audio Adrenaline concert uh, last year. I think it was an amazing concert. It was wonderful. We had a bunch of folks who don't normally come here who came in. We got, they got to hear the gospel. That's a great thing. But I think what Jesus would say is, but what then? Are you making disciples out of the crowds? As friends, I think that's our goal at First Baptist Church, isn't it? We, we don't want to just draw the crowds. So that's part of it. Are we making disciples? Are we making disciples who put Jesus first? Disciples who last the long run? Who bear the cross, whether it's light or heavy for you, to follow Jesus? Let me ask you, are you putting Jesus first? Are you putting him first? You know, in some sense, it's easy to put Jesus before bad things. It's not easy. It's, It's clearer, right? Jesus should come before drugs in your life. Jesus should come before violence. Jesus should come before pornography. He should come before greed. He should come before hatred. I think think we know that. That's that's crystal clear. I mean, you know, if somebody hates somebody, you know that's wrong. It shouldn't be what you're doing. Jesus should come first. We should love our neighbor and so forth. But the real challenge is what he's saying here. Do you put him even before the good things in your life? The things that God puts in your life that are good, family and friends, and even yourself. And I know many of you do. I've talked to many people in this church who have sacrificed a lot when it comes to family to follow Jesus. Who Now because you follow Jesus, you don't get invited to the family weddings. You don't get invited to the family reunions. Or some of you, I know when you were younger and you followed Christ, you were rejected by your your own parents. You paid the price of saying, I will follow Jesus no matter what. I love the old uh, song, spiritual. I don't know if it's a hymn, whatever it is. Uh, I have decided to follow Jesus. And how does it go? I think it's the second verse. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. So I decided to do a little research in it. Where did that song actually come from? Actually, the words are based on the last words of a man of Assam, country of Assam, who along with his family decided to follow Jesus Christ. He was called to renounce his faith by the village chief. He responded, I have decided to follow Jesus. His family was threatened. He responded, though no one joins me, still I will follow. His wife was executed, and as he himself was being martyred, he sang, the cross before me, the world behind me. And his witness led to the conversion of the chief and many others in the village. Well, another guy, a sadhu from India. A sadhu is a, a holy man. When we were in uh, Nepal. We met a, lo- a lot of uh, sadhus. We saw a lot of sadhus. Became a Christian. His name was Sundar Singh. Well, Sundar pursued all different types of religions. Sikhism and all these different things. And he ultimately found no meaning in any of them. So he resolved to take his own life. Well, the night that he planned to take his life, that very night he had a vision of Jesus and Sundar announced to his father that he had become a Christian. His father and brother denounced him and attempted to poison him. The people terrorized him, even throwing snakes into his house. But Sundar became a missionary to his own people and he's described as some as a formative figure in the Christian church in India. And he's the one who took the words of that man of Assam and put them into a song. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Are so you willing to put Jesus before everyone and everything? Some of you are saying, I- I'll never get there. I mean, his- his- this calling is too high. It's too hard, Rick. Well, it's a lifelong pursuit. The idea of following assumes that it's a process immediately there on day one, that you're willing to put every, Jesus before everything in your life. You're, you're constantly pursuing that end. That's the process of discipleship. We're not saved because we put Jesus first, we're saved by the grace of God through Christ. In fact, I think it's interesting that this passage comes right in the context where right before this, he describes a wedding feast in which everyone is invited, the poor, the lame, the crippled, all the people, in, the, in a parable, are welcome to celebrate the wedding feast of the Lord And the passage right after this, Luke 15, is the prodigal of the, I mean, the, the parable of the prodigal son, where God searches out and brings home his lost son. So certainly friends, we're saved by grace, but the pursuit of a Christian of discipleship is to follow him, no matter where, no matter when, and even if we go it alone, 28 to 33, disciples count the cost. They count the cost and they find Jesus worth it. (laughs) They find him worth it. A a disciple counts the cost and finds Jesus worth it. Jesus uses two illustrations here uh, to explain this. One is building a tower and the other is defending a kingdom. So first, uh, building a tower. If you're going to build a tower, uh, you need to first sit down and count the cost. Uh, Do you have the money? Do you have the resources? Do you have the time? Do you have the energy? Do you have the people, the the, the workers that are going to actually be able to build this tower? Consider it. Carefully, and then start building. That's what he's saying when it comes to the Christian life. If you're going to follow Jesus, count the cost. Are you able to follow? Him? Are you really willing to follow him to whatever end? Or the second one is a king. The king has ten thousand men. He's going against another king who has twenty thousand men. He better sit down quickly and consider whether he can go against this other army, because he only has half as many. And as the old saying is, if you can't beat him. Join them, right? Because there's no way you're going to go be able to beat someone with double the size of your army. It's time for you to go and make peace. Consider the cost of going to war against the king who has double your army. As he ends it by saying, are you willing to give up everything? The disciple is one who gives up everything. Meaning that, not necessarily that you sell everything, but are you willing? Is it, does it, in a sense, in your own mind, in your own heart, does it all belong to the Lord? Your family, your stuff, your goals... Your future. That's what it means to follow. The point in both of these parables, I think, is pretty clear. Uh, Carefully count the cost. But know that it's worth it, friends. There is a slight difference, though. The first threatens the failure of not counting the cost. So if you don't count the cost and you try to build this tower and you only get through the foundation, you run out of funds, you run out of energy or time or whatever it is, then you will be ashamed. You'll be humiliated, he says, among all your neighbors. Now, uh, we don't live in in a shame, honor culture, uh, but the first century Israel was very clearly a shame and honor culture. We learned this in the perspectives class, how important this really is In, in in a shame and honor culture. This is everything. to to sit there and be humiliated in front of all of your neighbors that you weren't wise enough to sit down and consider whether you could actually finish the job and have this sort of half tower sitting on your property all the time would be an embarrassment it would be a stigma upon you for the rest of your life are you willing have you sit down and considered whether you could actually follow Jesus and that is the joy of success a tower would be a valuable thing for protection for safety in a storm or whatever it is there would be a value in having this the second one emphasizes the urgency of not counting the cost if you can't beat this king you will die (laughs) that's the bottom line so you better get to considering whether you can actually wage this war or not see the first one you can take your time you know you can sort of sit there and go through all the budget and try to figure out whether you have the resources there's no real pressure in terms of time but there is a cost whether you fail or not but in the second one The king is coming against you. A greater king is coming. And if you are not prepared, you will die. Are you ready to face the better king, the greater king? But, either case, friends, I would say following Jesus is worth it. That's what he's saying. Making peace with the true king is worth it. Setting forth to follow Jesus in discipleship and finishing to completion. What you set out to do is worth it. It is worth it. It is of infinite value. Have you counted the cost? You know, we do this all the time. We're we're taking, some of you guys are taking the Financial Peace University class. I know I keep mentioning it, but uh, that's what he's asking us to do. That's what Dave Ramsey in the classes is asking you. Have you sit down and count the cost? Are you, do you set out a budget? Can you afford this? Can you retire? <laughs> My guess is for those here who aren't retired, you would like to retire someday. Have you sat down and considered whether you can actually make it to retire? Because Social Security is probably not going to get you there. So have you actually counted the cost? Today, after the service, uh, for for our members and any regular attenders that want to come, as we said, we have our budget meeting. (laughs) What are we doing? We're counting the cost of the upcoming year. Can we pay our bills? Can we do the ministry that we are setting out to do? Now, if God blesses us even more, that would be all the better. But nevertheless, it's wisdom to say we're going to count the cost of what's coming. um, I'd like to run a marathon. My wife, this is driving my wife crazy because I'm going nuts about this here. Ran over 7 miles yesterday. You guys, last week I said 10 miles. So I'm, I, I know where I have to get. I've got to get to a half marathon is 13.2. Boston marathon is 26.4. So I'm not there yet. If I just decide to show up in Boston, you know, actually you can't even do that because you have to qualify. But nevertheless, you get the idea. And try to run a marathon, I'm not going to make it. I have to sit down and consider whether I'm ready to do it, whether I have the ability to run the whole thing and make it to the end. Have you counted the cost of the Christian life, friends? Here's what happens if you don't. You don't finish the life. You don't finish the race. You don't finish the Christian life. And friends, I see this again and again, particularly from the vantage point of a pastor. Somebody comes and is excited about Jesus and they want to follow him and they're reading the Bible every day and then they burn out in a month or six months or a year or whatever it is, like a match that you light, it burns, but it only's got a little tiny stick, it burns out before you know it. They haven't counted the cost of what it means to truly and really follow Jesus. You said, I'm in this for the long haul. I'm running the marathon. I'm here to stay. I'm not giving up. I'm gonna be faithful right to the last breath. You counted the cost. And then verses 34 to 35. Disciples influence others like salt, like savory salt. I love how he ends this with this talk about salt. Uh, disciples, disciples are called to stay salty. Uh, salt is good, he says. I agree with him. Anyone agree salt is good? <laughs> I agree. Too much salt is not good, but salt itself is good. I like salty, right? Salty potato chips or whatever, you know, salt is good. But he says here, if salt loses its saltiness, uh, then it's not good for anything. Now, here's the thing about sodium chloride, for those of you guys know a little bit about, you know, chemistry, uh, salt can never lose saltiness, right? It can't actually become unsalty. Salt is salt. That's just what it is. But here's what can happen to salt, and here's what did happen to salt in the first century, is it gets mixed with all different types of impurities. It gets mixed with sand. It gets mixed with dirt. It gets mixed with clay, And it gets leached out, and pretty soon you have something that looks like salt, but actually isn't salty at all, and it's useless. And as Jesus says, it's not fit for anything, not even to throw it in the manure pile, which is interesting, isn't it? So at least manure has a value. It can help fertilize your crops. But if you throw salt that's not actually salty in it, it just ruins the manure. I like what Francis Chan said, Wow, how would you like to hear the Son of God say, You would ruin manure. When salt is salty, it helps manure become good fertilizer. But lukewarm and uncommitted faith is completely useless. It can't even benefit manure. A disciple who is no longer salty is useless and would even ruin manure in this illustration. Discipleship is saltiness. What does salt do? It preserves from decay. This is before refrigeration. You didn't have refrigeration. So what did you do? You had to mix salt in things to make sure it preserves it. And it also, and still does, flavors whatever it's around. It brings out any... I know we have some chefs here. Brings out the flavor of whatever it's in, as long as you don't overdo it. Friends, we are called as Christians, as disciples, to stay salty. I like that he uses salt here as for discipleship, because salt is potent. Salt is strong, it's, it's powerful, it gives flavor. You know, salt, The Christian life and being a disciple isn't, doesn't mean you have to be nice and friendly at, time, at all times. There's a time to be bold, to be shocking, to, to step out of the box, to be in your faith, in someone's face. I remember uh, our brother Russell here told me the story of how he came to faith and uh, he said he was, in a, I hope he doesn't mind me mentioning this, but he was in a bar one time uh, before he was a Christian and a man walked in there looked at Russell and said, Russell, you outside right now. <laughs> and Russell said, all right, I'm ready, ready to throw down. So he walks out of the bar ready to fight and the man walks up to him and says, I want to tell you about Jesus Christ and what he's done for sinners to save them." He knew Roberta, that's why he knew Russell, went after Russell and shared the gospel with him and there right outside the bar they prayed to receive Christ. That's saltiness, friends. <laughs> that's not always being nice and friendly all the time. We're called to be effective. The last thing you want to be as a disciple is normal. Like everybody else. Bland. Average. Typical. Just so-so. Salt affects whatever it's around. Friends, are you staying salty? Are you staying salty? How are you affecting your, your non-Christian neighbors? Do you have any effect on them at all? Your non-Christian family. You tell them about the Lord Jesus. Do they even know you're a believer, know you're a follower of Christ. Have you ever invited them to church? Your non-Christian friends. Do you have any impact on those who don't know the Lord Jesus that are around you? Co-workers. How are you affecting your church that, now, then, that in turn affects the community. So you may yourself not be, uh, have to be on the evangelism team to be doing evangelism. Are, are you serving your church so that your church is a better impact in our community? I think we can learn a little bit from the Patriots. One, because I'm a big Patriots fan. But what's the big thing about the Patriots? Do your job, right? How do you win games? Not by everybody trying to be the quarterback. Not by everybody trying to be on the line or whatever. By everybody doing their job, they have a winning team that goes and wins championships, right? That's how it works. The church, in many ways, is the same thing of the body image. How do, you, how do you reach your community? By everybody in the church doing your job. Using the gifts that God is using you given you. For the betterment of his people and for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Do your job. Are you helping your church reach its community to be salty? Friends, are you becoming, have you become more salty or less salty as the years have gone by? Are you affecting and impacting those around you more so than you were before? Or have you become like this salt that's become so impure because of its mixture with worldliness with the sand and the grit and the dust that it would ruin manure and no longer has any effect on what's around it. Disciples are called to influence others like salt. Jesus is calling for true disciples to follow him. Disciples follow Jesus above everyone. They count the cost and find Jesus worth it. And they are salty as they affect that which is around it. Friends, let's be a church that makes disciples. Let's make disciples. Let's make Jesus first, cost-counted, salty disciples. (laughs) And then send them out into our world. Let's send them out into homes, into our downtown. Into hospitals, into schools, into jails, into the suburbs as well, and onto the mission field. Let's make disciples who follow Jesus. Pray with me. Well, our great and our gracious Father, thank you so much for the high calling of discipleship to follow Jesus and to put you first. Father, I do pray for anyone here who maybe doesn't know the Lord Jesus yet, who is maybe coming to know him or is at a stage in their life where they're looking into it, they're considering, they're maybe reading the scriptures a little bit and started coming to a church or whatever it may be and are starting to learn about you. Help them to understand that salvation is a gift of grace, completely, completely, the work of Christ in our behalf. That you gave your son to save sinners, to make them your own. But then, Father, we are called to follow Jesus, to put him first, to be salty, to count the cost, to finish the race, to follow you to the end. Thank you so much, Lord, for your grace, your blessing upon our church. Thank you that disciples are being made here. We can't do it without you, Lord. We look to your spirit. Help us, Father, as your people, to be about the work that you have set before us as we looked at in Matthew 28. To go, therefore, to all nations, including our own, but also to the ends of the earth, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that you have commanded us. And Lord, we take great comfort in knowing that you are with us even to the end of the age. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.